Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 102, February 27th to March 5th, 1863. Last week, we talked about irregular warfare, while focusing mostly in Missouri, because that is arguably the most intense guerrilla activity, there will be irregular warfare almost everywhere in the South. Something we did not mention and should be noted that there would also be incursions into northern states, something we'll make sure to highlight in future episodes. It ties fairly well into our story because on occasion, support for southern guerrillas came in the form of northern copperheads. We will talk briefly about that, but also talk about action at Fort McAllister and Thompson Station. First, though, let's get into Northern Conscription. Before we do that, though, just want to mention, I'm sure you've heard the announcements for our previous uh, Patreon content, and that was uh, Rufus Dawes and his memoir, and uh, we're going to be rolling in to another memoir review, and this one's going to be John Singleton Mosby. And uh, this, it's kind of interesting to see how those two memoirs uh, compare and contrast. And we're actually going to be talking about Mosby here next week in one of his more famous raids. So it's going to also be relevant to our story. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, the Patreon link is in the show description. And of course, those proceeds are going to go toward just the general upkeep of the show. So uh, always very appreciative of that. Now we have had previous talks about conscription and exactly what that looks like, but the emphasis has mostly been on the southern states, whom as you know are greatly lacking in manpower. While it is interesting to mention the dissenters, we need to keep in mind that 75% of the male population will go on to fight for the south. The Lincoln administration will now have to match the Confederacy in their drafting of soldiers. March 3, 1863 would require males aged 20 to 45 to become enrolled for a potential draft. Much like the South, there was a list of those who would be exempt from the draft as well. One could also buy their way out of the system with $300. Commutation, as it was known, was a way in which the Union Army could avoid soldiers who were less than willing to fight, but there were also drawbacks. It makes sense to draw the conclusion that 300 was a lot of money for unskilled workers in the 1860s. This would be a hated policy of the government during the war as a result, because it essentially hampered you financially or forced you to join the army and avoid having to take that money away from your family. It's a real catch-22 if you think about it. Money was also important to the war effort, but this is another example of the war being fought by the poor, waged for the rich. In the case of the North, this would target manufacturing workers and immigrants, because if you had applied for citizenship, then you were included in potential conscription see what they did there. That's part of the reason why, and we mentioned in other episodes exactly why there was a large amount of immigrants, especially in the Union Army, though this is also part of the reason. 
I've seen a couple of different times in my memoir reviews where it is mentioned how the incoming draftees were immigrants and therefore receiving a certain amount of disdain by soldiers already in the Army of the Potomac. There's actually an interesting account where there's a couple of individuals who are brought up on charges of desertion, and I can't remember if it's Wilkinson or if it was Elisha Hunt Rhodes who talked about this, but they were not quite so forgiving of these individuals because they deserted several times, and I think it was actually mentioned that they didn't necessarily speak English, so it was perhaps there was a little bit of a language barrier there, perhaps they didn't understand, but you know, however you cut it, they ended up uh, being executed by firing squad. So, uh, and this could have been a very similar scenario to what we're talking about here, where uh, they get brought in to serve in the army right away after coming over from Europe. The ire for immigrant soldiers was especially reserved for Germans, though. We're going to see this sentiment increase, especially after Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, where the 11th Corps, made of mostly Germans, is not going to perform particularly well. Now, you could also employ a substitute to fight in your place, which also targeted the poor and immigrants, putting them into the war instead of potential wealthy northerners. But the problem with substitution is that these men were more than likely to desert at the first opportunity. In James Wilkerson's memoir, there's a very vivid highlighting of bounty jumpers and how some men would run the scam multiple times in order to collect the money. As you can imagine, though, the draft and conscription is going to be met with hostility, which we are going to highlight moving forward. Provost Marshal General James Barnett Fry was appointed by Edwin Stanton to oversee the operation. Fry was an Illinois native and West Point graduate who served in a variety of conflicts before the Civil War. He's actually already served as Chief of Staff for Irvin McDowell during the first Bull Run campaign. After the war, Fry will also pen an account of the murder of Bull Nelson, who you remember was offed by Jefferson C. Davis back in 1862. Fry would then appoint subsequent provost marshals for each state, the exception being multiple marshals for New York and Pennsylvania. Enrollment officers would conduct census of eligible males in sub-districts. Enrollment officers, much like tax collectors during the Revolution, were, as you can imagine, not very popular. Moving forward through time, drafts will be enacted during World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. So this is setting the precedent moving forward. I think we also need to take some time today to talk about one of the reasons there was a lackluster response to the Northern War effort. Since we have now mentioned the conscription draft for the North, let's talk a little bit about Democratic Copperheads. We have mentioned that there were Peace Democrats who were gaining traction in terms of support in the North. When we talk about support for both sides, I think we did not mention enough the opposition that some showed in the South and some showed in the North to the war. While we think mostly in a political sense in the North, there were times violent protests resulted. 
there are accounts of recruiting efforts being derailed by violence. Republicans would write to their representatives, asking for help, as the Democrats that live near them would threaten their lives. The point is, there was more opposition to the war than we might think. Some had ties to the South, or no ties to abolition, or making violence on the South. This would be the why-not-let-them-go attitude. Some Copperheads would argue that Lincoln was acting in an unconstitutional manner. Nation as it was, Constitution as it is, was the campaign slogan. Emancipation would only exasperate this issue. I always have this interesting you know, love-hate relationship with the way in which the Civil War is portrayed, especially in the school systems that we have. And uh, if you were to ask anybody who takes just a basic American history class, then they're going to say the Civil War was fought over slavery. And it's very cut and dry sometimes, the way in which it's described. You know, the entire South was for slavery and the North was for abolition, and that's how it was. But it's a lot more complicated when you really dive into the issue. And there's an interesting point I like to make here is that there were plenty of people who were very much understanding of just the cultural differences between the North and the South. And that's why there is this, you know, why don't, why not make them their own country? They can just go be their own country because they're almost a foreign entity as it is. So it's, it's just interesting to see sometimes how these things roll out. And especially as the casualty lists come back and remember that even with the amount of individuals who are dying on the battlefield, there are more individuals who are getting sick and dying as well. Just with the amount of lives being lost, this sentiment is going to increase and there's going to be a very much opposition to the war. And it's going to make the 1864 election that much more important. So we'll get there in due time and we'll talk about it in depth, but it's not necessarily just a cut and dry election where Lincoln's just going to win, and this is going to be part of it. There's a great example of a Union regiment in A Thousand May Fall, which is an account of the 107th Ohio. Many of these soldiers, despite their primarily German heritage, would back Democratic candidates. There are some great examples of this, and the first is the Ohio governor race, where notorious Copperhead Clement Van Diggum would be running to control the key state. Now, I've actually also seen his name pronounced Vallandigham, uh, but I've also heard it pronounced Van Diggum, so not sure exactly which one is right. I like Van Diggum, uh, so I will be using that one. And I think if you've been listening as long as you have here, we're, we're over 100 episodes in, right? Uh, there are a couple of these names where I've heard it pronounced different ways, and I sort of just try to pick one so we keep things consistent. So I will be using Valendigum. Valendigum would actually violate a mandate that Ambrose Burnside had unrolled about sympathizing with the South. Burnside is going to be commanding that Department of Ohio, that key area there, uh, that includes Kentucky. He would flee to Bermuda and then move to conduct his campaign from Canada. We mentioned a while back that the Democrats made gains in the election at the end of 1862. 
With the case of the 107th Ohio, most of the Democratic members of the regiment were strategically moved away so that they could not vote. Most likely, this would not be the only example of voter suppression in the army, which probably comes as a shock. If the war is not tipping to the side of the Federals and the Lincoln administration, there might have been more of a movement for McClellan. The experiences of the Union soldiers, though, most likely influenced their decision-making. If you were garrisoning in remote locations only to serve as deterrent to guerrilla raids, you might not really be interested in continuing the war. On the flip side of that, if you saw heavy campaigning, then you may have likewise been fed up with the war. We need to understand that these enlisted men were actually humans with feelings, something I think we forget, and their experiences is complicated. Generally, though, soldiers would despise the Copperheads because they were undermining the war effort. This would be important for Lincoln, making sure he was re-elected. Things would not look so rosy for Lincoln, though, so it was not a foregone conclusion, as we mentioned. Lincoln even considered to take emancipation off the table if it meant to end the war. It's been a while since we have been down in the Savannah region. The last major event was the 1862 fall of Fort Pulaski. Now that fort had been obsolete when compared to the modern artillery that the Union Army could wield. What stopped the continuing push toward the city itself was Fort Jackson on the Savannah River, which if you recall combined with improved fortifications ordered by Robert E. Lee, was important to protecting the coastal confederacy further inland. To the south of the Savannah River was the Great Ogeechee River. This river would provide an alternative approach to Savannah and the Georgia interior. To protect this waterway, an earthen fort named Fort McAllister was constructed. Further upriver, a key railroad bridge made for an intriguing target against the railroad deficient south. The fort would be reinforced after being inspected by Bobby Lee himself and contained seven gun emplacements. Additionally, the Ogeechee was a haven for Confederate blockade running, most notably the CSS Nashville, a sidewheel steamer. Torpedoes were deployed near McAllister to add to the defenses. In the beginning of the war, Fort McAllister protecting the south, and Pulaski and Jackson protecting the north, was deemed to be a formidable defensive system to protect the key southern port. But because Savannah was important to the Confederacy, Samuel DuPont would make attempts at additional progress on the Georgia coast. Already there had been bombardments of Fort McAllister, the earthwork holding out against Union naval guns, in fact, sometimes getting the better of the Federals. In late January and early February of 1863, DuPont would dispatch an old friend, John Warden. Warden was commanding the USS Montauk, which was a new Passaic-class monitor. Now, if you recall not too long ago, we talked about the Passaic-class monitors, the important part being that there was an improved design to Erickson's original monitor. One of the improvements was the addition of a 15-inch Dahlgren gun, one of the more powerful on a naval vessel. The Montauk would shell McAllister, 
and despite the impressive weapon, did little damage. Confederate gunners, on the other hand, were unable to inflict damage on the Union ship, despite some direct hits. The CSS Nashville, on February 1st, would run aground near the fort, and unluckily, this would be the exact time when the Montauk and her supporting ships would return. Being that the range was essentially the same between the ship and the fort, the Montauk would strike the runner 15 times, one shot igniting the wooden ship, causing of a fire that would destroy the rebel vessel. Unfortunately for the Montauk, she would then strike a torpedo, causing some damage that could have been much worse. Dodging complete destruction, the Montauk would have to return to Port Royal for repairs. Emerald DuPont would wish to try again, this time sending in Commander Percival Drayton, commanding the USS Passaic, USS Patapsco, and USS Nanhunt. March 3, 1863 would mark the renewed bombardment, infantry support standing by should the monitors pound the forts into submission. But the Confederates were anticipating this, and had reinforced the earthworks. Several problems would arise from the bombardment. While there was some success in the form of knocking out one of the Confederate guns, the monitors and their slow rate of fire were hampered. When the turret spun, and then opened the gun ports, it was a key sign to the Confederate defenders that they needed to take cover. Therefore, they could fire on the open ports in an attempt to inflict internal damage, but then withdraw safely before the 15-inch guns could be fired. But there was a more important development from the action on March 3rd. A Confederate mortar was also present at the fort. The commander of the mortar crew would fill the shells with sand, so that there was more force on the plunging shot. If you recall our action at Drury's Bluff, plunging fire was definitely a problem with most ironclads, but especially the monitors. A hit from the mortar almost severely damaged the Passaic, a beam saving the shot from going straight through the vessel. As night fell, the Confederates were able to repair the damages done to the fort. This is another takeaway that sand fortifications were better able to take the bombardments that the Union Navy were able to unleash. In order to prevent this, there would need to be overnight bombardment to dissuade Confederate soldiers, as well as the slave labor, from being employed. Having failed to destroy the fort and force a surrender, the Union Navy would withdraw. Casualties on both sides were minimal. Admiral DuPont would use this assault on McAllister as a dry run for his more prized target of Charleston. While there were some improvements made to the Passaic-class vessels, including improved armor and a mine-sweeping apparatus, ultimately, these would not be enough, as we will soon see in a future episode. So, as I say often, stay tuned for that. It's definitely interesting contrast, though. You know, you have these brick-and-mortar fortifications that we talked about and, and how almost easily it is to, with modern weaponry in the 1860s, to knock these out. And you see that there's this innovation in terms of what the fortifications were being made out of. It's a great example of both sides having to adapt 
to how the war is going. And normally when we think innovation, we think of these big things that the North is doing, you know, the Gatling guns, uh, you know, machine guns, barbed wire, repeating rifles. These things will roll out in time. Um, but even little things like understanding trench warfare and both sides, for the most part, understand the advantages of that. And here we have the Confederates understanding that if they're going to build these coastal forts, they're going to be taking on heavy fire from large weapons that the Union Army and Navy can bring to bear. And we're going to have to make it so it's not a material that wants damage is going to be pretty complicated to repair. So these sand fortifications are going to be pretty effective. And we'll see some of them having been built in the Charleston area and how it takes a long time for the Union Army and Navy to surpass these. When we were last in Tennessee, we dealt with the aftermath of the Battle of Stones River. To say that both sides were dissatisfied with events that transpired after the bloody engagement was an understatement. Bragg had wasted a good attack, then launched an ill-advised one before deciding on a withdrawal well away from the enemy. Rosecrans, on the other hand, had not pursued the rebels and did not follow up on the victory. There would need to be rest and resupply for sure, but the progress for the Federals was not what the Lincoln administration wanted to see. A massive earthen fort dubbed Fort Rosecrans would be built just in case the Confederates decided to launch another offensive. Facing the pressure, Rosecrans would finally order a reconnaissance by infantry under John Coburn from Franklin in the direction of Spring Hill. These locations would be relatively south of Nashville. Coburn had served in the House of Representatives for Indiana prior to the war. He's actually going to go on to receive the surrender of the city of Atlanta in 1864. Coburn and his 2,500 men would advance and make contact with rebel troopers under Red Jackson. Red Jackson was a Tennessee native who had attended West Point and studied cavalry at the Carlisle Barracks. He was an excellent choice to lead cavalry, not only from his experience, but also his experience on the frontier, serving at Fort Bliss in Texas and Fort Craig in New Mexico. After the war, he will marry Celine Harding and become the owner of Bell Mead Plantation, which had 5,300 acres. In 1863, he commanded a division of cavalry under the overall command of Earl Van Dorn. Van Dorn would devise a plan to trap Coburn. While Jackson assaulted the front of the Union position, the other Confederate cavalry division under Forrest would flank the Yankees and come in on the rear. Coburn had been wary of the ease at which his infantry brushed away the Confederate troopers. Rightfully so, because there was an increase in resistance from Jackson's men, eventually pushing Coburn's Midwestern units from their high ground. It should be noted that the Confederates numbered some 7,500 men, a large advantage compared to the 2,000-some Federals. Forrest would have success in flanking and cutting off the Union troops. As a result, there was no option but surrender for Coburn. It was a resounding Confederate victory. 
Van Dorn, it should be pointed out, gave credit to his subordinates, coming a long way from his flamboyant and self-confident attitude we saw early in the war. No, we don't always like to talk about what-ifs, and some some historians definitely are, are extremely negative on that, um, but I always like to throw these out there, hypothetical scenarios. I think it's always interesting to think about you know, the positives, the negatives, that success or failure, or if things played out differently. I think it's always interesting to think about that. And one of the things that, especially in this theater of the war at this time, that I think about is what if Earl Van Dorn uh, doesn't get murdered by a jealous husband? What if he continues as this cavalry commander? He had sort of bumped heads with Nathan Bedford Forrest, but I think they came to an understanding. I think they understood that um, Earl Van Dorn is the tactician in terms of cavalry, and Forrest is more the muscle, and he's not going to participate very well in a traditional army system as a corps commander, but Earl Van Dorn might have been that kind of glue to the Confederate cavalry in this area, and it's not to say that Joe Wheeler was necessarily an incompetent officer. He certainly had his faults, and we're going to see Coming up here in future campaigns, you'll definitely have faults. But if Earl Van Dorn is leading this cavalry, exactly how different it would be is just something that we can chalk up to those what-ifs for the Confederate Army in this area. And I don't know. It's one of those things where you know Van Dorn obviously learns from his mistake in terms of leading uh, these armies, say Pea Ridge, and then again at Corinth. And he gets kind of his niche, and right when it's looking like it's going to click for him in terms of uh, his career as a soldier, it gets cut a little bit short. So would he have turned the tide necessarily in this theater, and would he have got Bragg some much-needed victories sooner than he does? Um, Maybe not, but it is, like I said, just something to throw out there and think about. Union troops had a total of 1,906 casualties, including many who were captured. Confederates would suffer around 300, a sharp contrast. This would not go well toward further Union offensive actions for the time being. Bragg, on the other hand, would grow a little bit complacent, and he would not realize that at a certain point, Rosecrans and the Army of the Cumberland was going to rumble forward. We're going to talk about it here in future episodes, but the action at Thompson Station is another example of how the Confederate cavalry is superior than that of the Union cavalry. And I know it was an infantry action from the part of the Army of the Cumberland, but it is going to lead toward a greater investment into the mounted arm of Rosecrans and trying to bring closer to even footing in terms of that arm of the military. Let's go ahead and call it quits right there. We talked about Northern Conscription and Democratic Copperheads. We had action at Fort McAllister outside of Savannah, which will be valuable experience for the Union Navy. Tennessee sees its first action since the Battle of Stones River with the Battle of Thompson Station. Next week, we're going to get into the Confederate Impressment Law, but excitingly, we also have Mosby's raid on Fairfax Courthouse, which will make him a legend and also make the region known as Mosby's Confederacy, and also make him the Grey Ghost. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Post in the description should be a link to the website, 
as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is at cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.